Now then, if you um, have your Bible with you, or if you want to follow uh, the scripture reading, is actually uh, in the bulletin. It's printed on one side. I almost feel apologetic about printing all that material there. Uh, I have one who is a PhD candidate in New Testament interpretation. This passage that we have to read today for our lesson has been uh, a battleground of controversy for some uh, textual critics over the years. Every time you come to it, you see it either put in brackets or relegated to the end of the, uh, some book in the Bible or placed at a different place. And so I almost feel uh, defensive when I come to it, so I want to put down all my scholarly reading so that you, if you want to argue about it, you can read it uh, there. I don't have time to do it now. Uh, <laughs> at verse 53, in the version of the Bible that I'm using, uh, which is the New American Standard, if you want to be delivered from all era, then <laughs> that's about as literal as you can get outside of the Amplified. Uh, uh, this begins in a bracket at verse uh, 53 at the end of chapter 7. By the way, let me say in the beginning that one reason that this has been uh, so controversial down through the ages has been that our Lord here is showing forgiveness, the love of God, the love of Christ extended to a terribly sinful a woman, and also love that ought to be extended to us. Uh, but apparently some of the bishops and scholars and scribes down in the history of the church in reading this account felt that our Lord Jesus was being far, far too lenient uh, with a person who had done a terrible sin. And so uh, some scribe would be writing it down and the bishop would come along and say, oh, wait a minute, uh, this will encourage people to be immoral. Take it out. Put it someplace else. Relegate it somewhere else. So the scribe would take it out, then the bishop would leave, then the scribe would put it back. <laughs> and I'm glad they did. The tenacity with which this is clung in families of manuscripts is very interesting uh, because it shows the integrity. God will do what God wishes to do in extending his grace. Don't ever forget that. God will forgive. And this is what he is teaching here. So in verse 53, at the end of chapter 7, after a raging controversy with the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, uh, it says, and everyone went to his home. But, this is chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus, and with his finger, wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she had been, in the midst, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessed message and song which we have already heard this morning. And from that incident in the temple which displays for us so graphically and memorably from the life of our Lord, his great love for us, there is no one in this room who is without sin. And I hope no one fool enough to think that he is. And we pray that you will bless us, that we may sit in your presence for a while this morning, seeking your blessing, asking you to guide us and lead us in the right way, so that we will be faithful and true to you and to the standards you require of, and so that we will be forgiving and a blessing to others who need our encouragement and help. We thank you that you have given money for our use. We pray that that part of it, which we bring here this day and ask to be used in a special way by your Holy Spirit's direction, that it all might go just that way to bring honor to your name. And now make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I never hear that remarkable hymn that was sung a moment ago by Catherine Lacey without thinking of the fact that they found that scrawled on the wall of a state mental hospital. Describing the love of God, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That means your love. Now then, this morning, we want to look at this passage. Uh, we have been studying some characters that Jesus created in stories that he told. And we have been studying some encounters that Jesus had with people. Last week, we saw a metaphor in which he refers to himself as the Good Shepherd. I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And therefore I believe the most important thing in life is to follow him. I believe that the church is not a denomination. 
I believe that the church is shepherd, is sheep following their shepherd, and that that shepherd is Jesus Christ. Here, after having gone through a bitter controversy with the Pharisees, if you look back into chapter 7 at verse 45, the officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said, why did you not bring him? That is Jesus. He had been sent for by officers of the temple and was supposed to have been brought in for interrogation. They wanted to inquire about his teaching. And the officers came back with an interesting reply. They didn't arrest him. And you know what they said? Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. There must have been something powerful in the oratory of Jesus that would have made it so that some tough temple police came out to arrest him, heard him speaking, and had to walk away shaking their heads because they simply couldn't arrest him. They were overwhelmed by the power of what he was saying. The Pharisees therefore answered them, remember the Pharisees are lay leaders who are elders of the people. They are not paid uh, preachers, they are not uh, paid scribes, they are Pharisees who are, are very good people but harsh people. Uh, they are strict in what they do and they allow this to sour them. The Pharisees therefore answered, you have, not been you have not been led astray also, have you? They rebuked the temple police. And then look at their catty little remark. No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? See, that's a sort of put down. Not any of the leaders of the church really like him, do they? But the multitude this multitude which does not know the law, that was their put down, is accursed. Nicodemus, that's uh, our friend from the third chapter of John, who was humble enough to come to Jesus and seek about a new life. Nicodemus said to them, and he is designated by John, and one of the characteristics of John's record of the life of our Lord is little aside remarks that he puts in. He who came to him uh, by night. Uh, and he was one of them. He was a Pharisee. Our, our law does not judge a man, said Nicodemus, unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Then they answered and said to him, This is a, always a put down. You are not also from Galilee, are you? You see, there's real bitterness going on. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then we picked it up here, and everyone went to his own home. Now I think it's just some text as that, that would have brought out the incident that takes place next. And so I hold to the way it's been placed in the Bible for a long time. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We don't know where he stayed, we know that he had friends in that area. We also know that on one occasion he said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head.
It may have been that he spent the night out under the stars with his disciples. But we read that early in the morning he came again into the temple. Maybe it was just beginning to get daylight. And he comes to the temple precincts. And if you could imagine something as magnificent and grand as that enormous temple, and then see little booths, almost little uh, gatherings of people around certain rabbis that would come, and people would go uh, almost like us at a county fair uh, to one rabbi here, one rabbi there, and they would ask questions. They didn't go see a lawyer if they had a problem in the, the community. Often they went to see the rabbi to ask him to give them a, a reading from the law to guide them about it. But Jesus went to the uh, Mount of Olives early in the morning. He comes again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. He was powerfully attractive to the people. He was greatly loved and he was greatly hated. That's about the way it goes in life with great figures. They're greatly loved and greatly hated. Anytime someone says of a person, he never had an enemy in the world. He never did a thing in the world either. You couldn't say that of Jesus. You couldn't say it of John the Baptist. You couldn't say it of Martin Luther. You couldn't say it of John Calvin. You couldn't say it of anyone who ever did anything. And all the people were coming to him and down and began to teach them. And while he is teaching, the scribes and Pharisees, now that's a designation that uh, John usually doesn't make, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't have made it. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the midst uh, to catch someone in a sin like adultery, uh, which is usually committed under circumstances of great uh, privacy, uh, must have been quite a trick. And having set her in the midst, they bring the woman, not the man, And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. And this is touching that they would be this way. And because he had such powers of description, I want to read you a part of a sermon by Peter Marshall that Norton was kind enough to bring over to me yesterday because we were talking about this passage of Scripture and I'd been looking for, uh, for this particular uh, word of Peter Marshall's. Listen to his description. My, he could say things beautifully. The scribes and the Pharisees thrust their way toward Christ. In the midst of them is a woman. She is being dragged roughly by strong men whose faces are hard and stern. They pull her along. She struggles feebly now and then. She winces and cries out with pain. With all the strength of their contempt, they fling her down at Jesus' feet. Then they spew out their accusations in voices honed on hate. They shout the vile names reserved for such women. These are voices hot, like scorching blasts from a furnace. 
and others are cold as if they came from frozen hearts. The woman lies before Christ in a huddled heap, sobbing bitterly, trembling in shame, shivering as she listens to the indictment. Her head is bowed, her face is covered with her hands, her disheveled hair falls over her face, her dress is torn and stained with the dirt of the city streets along which she has been dragged. His disciples look into the face of Christ and they see in his eyes an infinite sadness as if all the load of all the sin that had ever been committed since the world began had already been laid on him. His steady eyes take in the situation at a glance. He sees what they try, try to hide from him. Their hard faces have no pity or mercy. They have looks of satisfaction and self-righteousness with which they finger stones that they have already picked up. Every hand holds a rock and clutching fingers run along the sharp edges with a malicious satisfaction. Isn't that a description? Now then, here they pose their question. Moses in the law commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? Notice John points out their motive. They were saying this testing him, that is Jesus, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now this is the point. Don't talk righteous to get at someone else for another reason. They were interested in preserving the law of purity. They were interested in killing Jesus Christ. And so they talk about this as a means of getting to him. They weren't concerned about the sanctity of marriage or the maintenance of purity in the home. Those were expendable. But they were concerned at finding some tricky way of trapping Jesus. And so they bring the woman and fling her down and ask him for his decision, hoping that if he says do not stone her because no his reputation of being a friend of sinners. That he will therefore indicate that he's not upholding the law of Moses. And knowing that if he does command her to be stoned, that he will have offended the Roman government which had the right of the sword, est gladii. That's where you get 
the uh, description of a, I always think of flowers, a gladiola comes from something that looks like a sword. Uh, est gladii, the right of the sword. And Rome had the right of the sword. And they wanted to keep that right of the sword and they couldn't allow these people to put this woman to death without uh, uh, getting the Roman government to do it. So if Jesus had said that, they could get the Romans on him. If he didn't say that, they could start upholding Moses and get him in trouble with the Sanhedrin and put him down. So this is why they go at this this way. But their motive of doing it is the main point I want to get across today. The other day I had some man up here, uh, Donald Mara, the vice president of Mara Lumber Company in uh, Nassau. And Donald's had a great experience with the Lord. Man, I mean the Lord has changed him and his whole family. And uh, he has been associated with a group of Christian businessmen who are charismatic. And they go from parts of the country and have testimonies. And when he was here, he held up his hand uh, when he was singing. At one time, he and his family were here. And someone asked me after church, they said, how did you feel about him holding his hand up? And I said, well, I got bursitis. And uh, I kind of envied him <laughs> being able to hold his hand up uh, uh, because I wish I could have held mine up uh, higher. Uh, Presbyterians are sort of half-mass at it. But uh, I said, there's a lot more in the Bible about the hand up than you think. The Bible says lifting up, holding hands in prayer. Well, you want to knock his testimony because he holds his hand up. Uh, that's a sorry way to get at somebody. Uh, it doesn't make any difference whether you hold your hand up or you hold your hand down. It's, it's your heart that counts. And uh, if your heart's right with the Lord, then put your hand up or keep it down. Do what you want to there. That, there's no rule on that. But your heart's got to be right with the Lord. But don't be picky. Picky. That, that's what they're doing here. They, they want to put this... Uh, uh, woman there, not because they have any desire to maintain the law regarding purity, but because they want to get Jesus and they want to use her as bait in the trap. And that's a bad thing uh, to do uh, at any. God will really get you for that. So, so remember that. Don't, don't use uh, uh, some uh, pious thing. One of the things about putting Jesus to death was they went through all those formal things to nail him uh, to a cross. Uh, you've got to really uh, be careful uh, here. So uh, they were saying this testing him, that is to put him to a, a trial in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus, Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. He, he, he stooped down and he began to write. Now let me say at this point, this is not to show that we are to be easy with Jesus' commandments about purity. If you read the Beatitudes, you will see that he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it will tell you, he that looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. 
His standard of purity is tremendous. And he has not suspended it for our modern day. He means for it still to be observed. That means that some of the stuff on TV, that some of the books and magazines, that some of the jokes simply ought to be avoided. I have a standard rule for people who tell dirty jokes in my presence, which I hate. Uh, not the people, but the jokes. I, I, I don't laugh. It's bad enough to tell a clean joke and nobody laughs. But to tell a dirty joke and nobody laughs, then they stew in their own juice. And, uh, and that's a good trick to remember. Uh, Jesus, when they brought this woman, thinking that they could confront him uh, in this way and bring some embarrassment on him, he just acted like he didn't hear him. Sometimes when someone starts to tell you something sorry about someone else or dirty, why don't you just say, don't hear him? Don't even get into it. Act like you don't even hear him. Let him think about it for a while. I have a good friend who does that, and it works like a charm. So he stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. But they persisted. They persisted in asking him. Uh, they were determined. And he straightened up. You know, I think he worked in a carpenter shop, and when they nailed him on a cross, he took the pain... And he, they marveled that he was still alive. He must have had a powerfully strong body to take what he was able to take physically, to be beaten like he was beaten and treated like he was treated. And I can imagine that with that voice that thousands of people could hear when he spoke, that when he stood up, it must have been impressive. And John seems to give... Uh, credence to this way of thinking here because it says that when he had straightened up after they kept persisting in this he said to them he who is without sin among you let him be the first to throw a stone at her now they knew the law of Moses and the law of Moses commanded that the man be brought as well as the woman. And this really threw them when he says this, because they had big stones clutched in their hands. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first, to throw a stone at her. You see, the witnesses to it, according to the Old Testament law, were to, to bring stones to this accusation. They surrounded her, and she was in the middle of a circle. Then they bring their charge to him, and then they would have thrown the stones. That's, you remember when Stephen was stoned? That they laid their, their garments at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who later is converted Paul. Well, they all had their stones, their big stones that would be heavy enough and powerful enough to 
to strike someone a, a death blow with. They clutched their stone in their hand. And then he said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I remember several years ago asking Robert Jones, who is one of our artists and a, a deacon in our church here, to, to make me a, a, a rock to put on my desk and to write across it for the sinless one among you. <laughs> you know, we ought to do that down at the store some summer, Robert. I don't know where you are, but you ought to get some of those little rocks, little velvet thing at the bottom of them, and write for the sinless one among you. There's enough of that that goes on in Montreat in the summer that you could sell out. Uh, you, 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 uh, the only trouble is they probably save them and use them. The, the, uh, uh, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again, and he wrote on the ground. He does that a second time. That's clever, because that takes the focus of attention off the woman, on to them. You see, they came to get Jesus and to push the woman forward. And Jesus draws the focus of attention back to their own hearts. Back to their own hearts. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, now he focuses it back on them. You know, a few weeks ago when those hostages were taken on that uh, TWA flight, one of the first rules of hostage negotiation is to slow things down. If you can slow down panicky, hysterical reactions, uh, you can help negotiate something. You can work it out. Uh, those of us who have to deal in crisis counseling learn very quickly that you've got to keep, you have to keep your wits about you when you go into a situation where uh, people are, are desperate. Uh, if others are in tears and panicky and screaming, you've got to seek to be calm. And you've got to try to enter them into something that will slow down making some uh, rapid, hysterical, panicky mood. This crowd was all geared up to start throwing stones and they were shouting and they were in a frenzy and Jesus slowed all of that down. He slowed all of it down. And that's a beautiful movement here. And then after he slows them down in his thinking, uh, uh, it's interesting to me he stoops back and he writes again. Now this has always been a conjecture. No one knows what he wrote uh, on the ground. We can never know that. The dust blew it all away. This is the only time in the Bible where Jesus has ever uh, spoken of as having written anything. And he wrote that in the dust on the ground. And... Uh, There are old manuscripts where people have tried for centuries to figure out what he might have written. 
It says that beginning at the oldest, older people may have a greater consciousness of their sin than younger people. They've surely committed a lot more of them. I know I often tell students who come back to me, they say, well, can you understand young people? Let me tell you something. They never have been old, but I have been young. <laughs> and it's, uh, the truth is sort of on the side there. Uh, and, it's, and it is significant that it says beginning at the, at the older ones, beginning at the older ones, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, holding on to their rock. But the older ones begin to think. Now, of course, you will remember that some of the scribes have suggested in uh, uh, one of the great New Testament scholars, Tasker, has read this and found the fragment that uh, says it, that uh, Jesus may, some scribe probably put this in in the Middle Ages, but uh, that Jesus may have just written in the name down in the sand. Maybe he just wrote down Eliezer. And then Eliezer was in the crowd and he looked. And then he thought for a minute. Then he put widow. Then he remembered he'd cheated a widow out of her house. He dropped his rock. And he slinks off through the crowd. He writes another name, Reuben. And Reuben looks. He remembers one time in the desert when no one was looking. Like Moses, he was angry at someone and killed him. And he thought no one on earth knew it but God. And Reuben slinks off in the crowd. And then he writes others. Now that's what an old scribe thought might have taken place. The sinless one among you. Every person in this room knows that we have done things which we should not have done. Someone told me about two drunks who stumbled into an Episcopal church when they were having the general confession. And... Uh, each was holding the other up and they heard him inside intoning the general confession we have done those things which we ought not to have done and we have left undone those things which we ought to have done and there is no help in us and one of them said I don't know where we are but it sounds like the right place <laughs> and there's a lot of, lot of truth in that so it slowed down they begin to think and then they begin to drop their rocks and they begin to go home and so this teaches a lesson that comes to you. That we need to drop our rock and give someone else another chance. We're always asking God to give us another chance. I remember, oh, 30-something years ago, I was fishing, trout fishing, not hunting, trout fishing out in New Mexico, up in the mountains, with an old cowboy who was a relative of my wife. We were on horseback. 
and we'd caught some trout and coming back I saw some mountain grouse and they went into a thing I hope the statute of limitations has now expired uh, I shot some of those grouse and it was out of season and I began to worry about that because I knew better than to do that that was years ago 30 some odd years ago and uh, when I got back I thought man I broke the law and that's not a very good Christian example <laughs> to, to set and this old cowboy tried to make me feel better he said I'll kill a coyote for you and a coyote will have spared more of those grouse and you don't worry about it you're going to eat them anyway and there was another old guy who was a tough old marine who was with us and I never will forget the way he comforted me because of what I'd done he said well maybe you won't be so hard on someone else <laughs> <laughs> And I've thought about that a lot of times since then. Uh, he kind of got right to the heart of the matter. And so, you know, if, if, if you want forgiveness, you've got to extend forgiveness. And uh, we need that forgiveness. I've got two poems to read, but I've just got time for one of them. And my wife would want me to read the classic. And this is John Donne, one of the great masters of Elizabethan English. Well, thou for, he makes a pun on his name. His name is Dunn, D-O-N-N-E, but it's pronounced Dunn. And John Dunn had done many things which he should not have done. And, uh, and he writes this in his poem, uh, a little sonnet called A Hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin? and made my sin their door. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear, that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Swear by thyself that at my death thy son, S-O-N, shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. Now we come to the close. And when he was left alone, and that must be one of the greatest scenes in all of the world, he who had never even thought of sin, he was left alone with this woman where she had been there in the center. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, that's the same thing he said to his mother, Woman. He used a dignified word, not a slur. Woman, 
Where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle in the Bible. It's the greatest because it's the one we need the most. It's the greatest because it costs the most. Jesus had to die on the cross to obtain forgiveness for us. It's the greatest because it does the most good. When we are forgiven, we'll drop our rock and go home. We'll leave someone else and help them. Forgiveness is something you have to pass on. We already prayed it this morning. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And it's the greatest because it's the hardest to believe. But Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And so he offers us forgiveness. And you can accept that forgiveness this morning. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, with sorrow and contrition of heart, we acknowledge before thee the faults and failures of the past. We have tried thy patience, and we have betrayed your sacred trust, and yet you are willing that we should come to you in lowliness of heart, as we do in this service, and ask you to drown our transgressions in the sea of your love. Forgive our failure to be true even to our own accepted standards. Forgive our self-deception in the face of temptation. Forgive us for choosing the worst when we knew better. Forgive our failure to apply to ourselves the standards of conduct which we have demanded of others. Forgive the blindness that we have had to the suffering of others and our slowness to be taught by our own suffering. Forgive our complacence towards wrongs that do not touch our own case and our oversensitivity to those that do. Forgive our slowness to see the good in our fellows and to see the evil in ourselves. Forgive the hardness of our hearts toward our neighbor's faults and our readiness to make allowances for our own faults. Give our unwillingness to believe that thou hast called us to a small work and our brother to a greater one. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from us. Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation, and give us the strength of a willing spirit.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.